Hello, thank you for joining. This is episode 42 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with Jay Blasey. We speak frequently on this podcast about the future and what's coming next in golf course architecture. Whatever it is and whatever it looks like will, at some point soon, be defined by a uniquely talented group of young designers and shapers currently working jobs around the world under the direction of more brightly lit names. One man poised to step onto center stage for a crucial role in contouring the future of golf design is Jay Blasey. Blasey began working in the offices of Robert Trent Jones II in 2000, and several years later played a critical role in the creation of Chambers Bay, site of the 2015 U.S. Open. While accreditation of Chambers Bay undoubtedly goes to Bob Jones, it was Blasey, along with Bruce Charlton, who was on-site extensively and largely responsible for how that avant-garde course, as Jones described it here in episode 10, came to be the 44th best modern golf course in America, at least according to Golf Week. A few years later, he was part of the much-lauded renovation of Century World in his home state of Wisconsin, a seminal Jones II design that brought the course back to a level of beauty and prominence it hadn't fully enjoyed since the 1980s. Blasey left RTJ2 in 2012 and opened his own design company. He works intimately with his clients, typically on only one project at a time, providing total investment. His recent remodel of Santa Ana Country Club in Orange County is particularly impressive, a complete reconfiguration of the club's century-old course, with firm rolling contours and landscapes that now ideally reflect the surrounding environment and arid Southern California climate. Jay's been on my wanted list for quite a while because he's a thoughtful, engaging person, and because I'm particularly interested in his ideas about where he sees golf design heading and what his outlook is for the near future. We spent a good bit of time discussing the state of public golf and how public golf can be revitalized in this country. In particular, we discussed Sharp Park, south of San Francisco, an Alistair McKenzie design that was one of the country's best pre-Great Depression public courses and that's now, and since about 1940, been just a shadow of what it could and should be. Blasey, as well as many others, believes Sharp Park can once again become one of America's great public golf courses, and since 2010 he's been involved in creating a restoration plan to bring back the lost McKenzie elements. Jay updates us on Sharp Park, and we delve into a variety of subjects in this round-the-world discussion. Here's one of the leading figures in the next generation of golf design, Jay Blasey. Well, so uh, obviously you're not at the PGA show this week when most of our cohorts are there. You know, I've I've never been to the PGA show. I, I regularly go to the the golf industry show, which obviously rotates through Orlando. Uh, but I've never been to the PGA show. And I was talking to somebody who was there yesterday, and I was I was asking him. I said, you know, do I need to go? It, it looks interesting from from tidbits that you see on on TV and whatnot. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how, how important it is or how interesting it is. Well, you're asking the wrong person. I've only been once and that was many years ago. And yeah, I'm just, I'm not interested in, in merchandise and that I'm interested in the business side of golf a little bit, but you know, that's, that's just an experience. I, I have this sort of paralyzing fear that if I go to something, one of these events that I'm not going to get invited to anything. I won't know that many people there, and I'll just spend three days kind of walking around by myself, you know, feeling terrible and stupid. So <laughs> I just take that off the table, and I don't even show up. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I did see that was interesting to me was it sounds like uh, somebody's come out with a new uh, version of a of a golf cart that looks like a motorcycle or a bike, and you straddle the bag, and um, they're I think they're trying to claim that it makes rounds shorter, which I don't understand how this little bike would turn a four-hour round into a two-hour round compared to either walking or a golf cart. But yeah. I've I've long been interested in whoever can create the the equivalent of a golf cart. My assumption will be that it'll be a single rider, not a double rider, that won't need a cart path that can go everywhere on the course without damaging the course. That to me is the, uh, the invention that I'm, I'm eager to, <laughs> to find. Have you seen courses that have, the, they're like those, um, what are those things that the mall cops drive around? Those two wheeler things, yeah. you know, kind of like, or like a hoverboard. There are some golf courses that I've, you know, seen PR releases on that have hoverboards now. I mean, that in theory would, would do the same thing. I guess you can attach your golf bag to the, to it somehow and kind of just scoot around on your own. But that was probably, that was the equivalent of of what you're talking about five years ago. And apparently that never took off. Yeah. Those golf boards, I think, you know, they're kind of cool. I've heard, I haven't used them. I've heard some people who have used them. I think Chambers Bay let them out for a while. Some they must've started in the Northwest maybe because I think most of the places I've heard of are in the Northwest. And I think people say that it's kind of fun and kind of cool. I think the challenge there is it it seems like it's been put into this kind of novelty uh, uh, kind of sideshow niche as opposed to, you know, if we just thought about the how many people take a cart, which I'm a walker and I wish that everybody would walk for all the benefits. But if if we just resigned ourselves to the fact that there are going to be a lot of people who ride – but if we could get those people riding in a manner that didn't require cart paths uh, from a development or a redevelopment standpoint of golf courses, it would save a ton of money. And from an architectural standpoint, it would uh, greatly improve golf courses. So, uh, Well, that's what I was just going to say is why, why have we given up on walking so much? And why, why don't we see more promoting of walking and carrying your bag and one reason is speaking of the show because nobody can make money off people walking I, you know that's a card fees and and selling whatever the equipment is that's coming out this year next year the year after that it's it's financially rewarding if you can get it to take off but you know that it, it all goes back to the idea of like why why can't we walk is, do you do you think that that concept is just a non-starter across the industry I cert well I certainly share your opinion that that you know why can't we walk right it works beautifully in Scotland uh to a, a greater degree than the US you know maybe in between the US and and Scotland is is the Australian model right where the the golf cart is just far less utilized or less available mm-hmm. uh, and but but both of those places also do such a better job of kind of actually focusing on what's important, right? They don't have $2 million maintenance budgets. Um, They play match play more often. You know, they do all the, you know, they focus on the golf. They don't have, you know, $40 million clubhouses. Uh, You know, people are there to to play golf and have a good time, and that's what it's about. Whereas, uh, 
it, for whatever reason in, in America, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head, I think a lot of it is it strictly relates to business. You know, you've got these golf course operators who are trying to make money and not necessarily focused on the golf experience so much. It's how can we bleed out every dollar and it's too bad because particularly with municipal golf where the the purpose of munip- municipal golf more often than not is is to provide a community asset right and when you think about that and think about the benefits of walking and and whatnot you know how many how many public parks in a city make money right very few if any uh but yet cities look at golf courses and they try to turn those into a money-making operation. And therefore you've got some operator in there who's trying to sell golf carts and merchandise and all that kind of stuff. It would be, it'd be great if, if we, we didn't focus so much on that and we were able to focus on, on the, the public, the community benefit (laughs) that it could provide. Yeah. I wonder how much, how much it's worth my time as someone who cares about what you're just talking about. And I, and we get together in our, with like-minded people in the industry and architects and certain developers and other writers and bloggers, et cetera. And we all feel the same way, but when you step outside, we, we all feel the same way regarding the benefits of public golf and, and focus where the, how the attention should be focused on more authentic community, simple uh, experiences of how you can enjoy golf more in the Scottish model, I guess. And then you step once outside of our little bubbles and it's just, it's staggering to see how few other people who play the sport are sympathetic to that idea because they are attracted the majority of golfers, face it, are attracted to a nice clubhouse and to perfectly manicured grass, and they ride when they play, and they are really into golf clubs and new equipment. You know, that, that probably describes an overwhelming majority of the American golfer. And it, it, I just wonder, like, how is it? <laughs> it is. It's worth our time, but like, how much? How much progress can we really expect to make? And and how does it start? How do you start to swing attitudes? Um, I don't know. I mean, people have great ideas, and we can we can get into those. But uh, you know, the pessimist in me says, "God, man, it's just not going to happen." Maybe we should just just let that model continue to exist because we can't change it. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I I wholeheartedly agree that um, you know sometimes it feels like we're all kind of shouting into the wind, or or it doesn't it doesn't do that much good if we're all just talking to ourselves. Um, but in my opinion. The the key group is, you know, at least as an architect, what I refer to as the client. So uh, in some instances, that could be a city council, right, or, or, or a, a park manager. In other instances, that's the board at a private club. Um, or in some instances, that's a developer, right? So in my, uh, my take is that, well, it's great for – architects and bloggers and um, you know superintendents to all kind of pat each other on the back and talk about how this is the right way and you know more people ought to do it the right way uh, in reality uh, it's it, it's incumbent upon us to educate clients and decision makers and bring them along and uh, explain to them why this could be good I've always felt like the PGA tour, 
not that it's necessarily their fault, but just what people tune into and see on TV has a huge influence on them. And how awesome would it be if the PGA Tour decided, hey, one week a year or a couple times a year, we're going to take a tour event to a truly municipal golf course. And I'm not talking about a municipal course that gets renovated for a PGA Tour event. I'm saying just take the tour to Joe Blow Muni down the street with zero preparation for the event in terms of agronomy and mm-hmm. let those guys play off of mats or bare dirt on a tee box. And, uh, you know, if there's thin greens or whatnot, that to me would, would have a huge impact if golfers around the country saw that a tournament could be fun to watch anywhere, right? As opposed to uh, a place that's been programmed for 51 weeks of the year to present well on television uh, the week that they're, they're center stage. That's an interesting idea. I mean, I wonder if you could you could write it into their, their contract. Like if you're going to have a PGA tour card, you know, one of the things you have to do on a three year revolving basis is at one point in these three years, you have to show up to these events Absolutely. that we're holding at these municipal golf courses. Like you don't have a choice. You have to do it. Yeah. But I know, I know the PGA is very much a free market. I don't know if, if you could make players do that, but it's a, it is a good idea just to kind of lift the profile of municipal golf and almost celebrate the simplicity of it, you know, celebrate the anti PGA, high agronomy setups and say, yeah, this is, this is how America plays golf in public golf courses. This is it. And it's, it's worthy to, it's worthy to look at and worthy to watch on television, see how these guys do here. Who cares what they score? You know, they could just winning score could be 27 under par. That's okay. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I think that would have it have a, a huge impact, uh, for, for people around the country to tune in and see something like that. Um, and it'd be great if if that kind of rotated, and so then then you've got people saying, "Oh my lord, I'm playing at the same place that the tour guy played, you know, uh, right. under the same conditions, <laughs> uh, all that kind of stuff." Yeah, I mean, I just think that there's there's some different groups in in the golf industry that have you know benefit you know like we talked about the the PGA show you got all these indis- quote industry leaders talking to each other right about grow the game and all these different initiatives well wouldn't it be great if those big giant you know multi-million or billion dollar entities uh really focused on uh where golf was played and they helped uh I don't know if subsidize is the right word, but um, if they really took a serious interest in actual municipal golf and making it uh, uh, sustainable and affordable and focusing on the right things, they're they're the ones who kind of have that power to be able to do that. And somebody explained to me as it relates to municipal golf, they said, um, you know, we kind of think about it the wrong way. They said, think about it like a university. A university doesn't survive off of student tuition. It survives off of graduate donations. Correct. Right? And so yeah. uh, if you know the USGA collects our $35 a year to get a hat, you know, what if our $35 a year to belong to the USGA or some other big entity that was 
there to support municipal or community golf, what if our 35 bucks a year went towards that and towards helping those those golf courses, uh, like you say, get refreshed or or uh, have initiatives for, for kids or different things like that so that they weren't always so focused on trying to be profitable and pushing the golf cart. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know how much money the USGA has in their war chest and in their own endowment and and how much money they spend on like a television commercial that they'll run during their, their televised national events. If you took that money and do just what you're saying and you, if I've thought about this, I, th- I would say on a year to year basis, you pick 10 or 15 municipal golf courses or public golf courses around the country and you can rotate them and you say, and, and the USGA applies the war chest that they have or takes a percentage of it and says, we're going to really promote golf. We're trying to get people interested. We're going to support public golf. This is the way we're going to get kids involved and you subsidize it. And so one day a week or twice a week or for a month, you say, we're going to basically pay your green fees to you and you're just going to offer golf for free. People still have to come and they have to get tee times, and but we're going to supply the green fees for you so we can get more people exposed. You might even have a system where uh, the USGA donates rental clubs uh, for, for new players or small bags or something that they carry around. But there are so many, the point is like what, just what you're saying, there's so many, there's so many more things that can be done amongst people who purport or from people who purport to care about this and care about the health of the game. But I think there's, I think the people in the positions of power are just so far removed from grassroots golf, from communities, from municipal golf, from, you know, they're they're sitting in offices and and a lot of them are CEOs or you know very successful people away from golf and I just don't know that they have that that vision or that connectivity to how golf is played by the vast majority of public players. Yeah, I I I think that many of them probably still do have uh, some connection to that. I think my take on that is that these organizations get so big just like any other industry uh, you know some other corporation in another industry or or government or whatever it just gets oftentimes they get so big that it becomes very challenging to actually accomplish stuff like that and to get an initiative going and and execute it but uh yeah think of the power of the USGA the PGA of America the PGA Tour uh, some of these, some of these big giant manufacturers, whether it's uh, Toro or uh, EasyGo golf cars, or you know, some of these big giant companies involved in golf, um, they've got a lot of reach. All the club manufacturers, and I'm sure that they do this to some extent. But to your point, um, one of the huge challenges with golf is the the barrier to entry right it's it's a hard game to learn it's an expensive game to acquire equipment and as you grow you need to change your equipment uh, and and then green fees are are higher than than many other places around the world and so there's that barrier to entry and then the last one which is perhaps maybe the most important nowadays is just the time right so if if the people who have benefited from golf the most were all able to kind of get together and chip in. And like you say, if at, at every municipal course, 
if you were under 16, you knew that you could show up and there'd be a set of clubs there for you to be able to use and some balls. Uh, and that uh, your green fee might be either taken care of or, or very, very affordable. Or maybe there's a program where for every time you uh, go out and caddy, then you earn a round. Uh-huh. Or some, or every time that you volunteer to pick the range, you earn a round of golf or something like that. Uh, I just think it would be, you know, we, all of us who love golf kind of know the benefits of uh, of being around a golf course and meeting new people and the etiquette of the game and the fun that you can have uh, and to be able to share that with more people or have people who are interested have greater access to it just i think it would mean the world one of the most high profile excuse me one of the most high high profile uh public golf projects potential projects is sharp park update us on sharp park since we're on this topic and and what what's happening there at this moment and, and what might happen in the next year or so so um for those who aren't familiar, Sharp Park is located in Pacifica, California, which is just south of San Francisco. It's actually uh, on the Pacific Ocean. It uh, uh, was designed by Alistair McKenzie in 1932. Uh, it, the property was a, uh, a gift and, and so therefore is, is owned and operated by the city of San Francisco. And... Um, when it opened, the golf course uh, had to be one of the most spectacular courses in the country. Uh, if you really take a close look at the original routing and some old aerial photos, the front nine in particular, uh, the second hole played out to the ocean, playing at a giant headland. The third hole played uh, north right up the beach, a hole playing right on the beach. Yeah. Fourth hole was a little par three with a mountain backdrop. The fifth hole uh, on Sharp Park, he had kind of two different versions of his Lido hole. The fifth was one of them. The sixth was a par three back to the water. The seventh was a par four, again, running directly down the beach. I mean, it, it, it was just it had to be one of one of the most spectacular courses in the country. Uh, maybe a decade after or, or so after they had some big storms and eventually they kind of um, a- abandoned those holes or kind of walked away from them. And, and then they built f- four new holes inland kind of a- across a road. Uh, Sharp Park is, has been in the news for the last decade because uh, it was involved in a, in a federal lawsuit and there was a, a high uh, – there was a decent chance that the golf course was going to go away that they were going to uh, close it and it would be just converted to a, a park and some local golfers and, and um, um, community members rallied together and said, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. You know, we're golfers, we're uh, environmental stewards as well. And, and the, the assertions that are being made here as to the environmental impacts of the course are not, uh, are not really accurate. They were related to the, the red-legged frog and the San Francisco garter snake, and so through the through the course of uh, the last you know decade or so, <clears throat> we've been able to uh, to win all of the legal battles and save the golf course and and you know we we know that the golf course and, and the uh, the habitat can kind of coexist. Our dream is to actually restore the golf course as as much as we can. We'll, we'll never be able to get. Uh, all of those holes back, but to try and restore as much of the McKenzie 
as possible. And so we're slowly but surely working towards that goal. Uh, and uh, each, each year there's a little bit of progress and hopefully uh, at some point we'll kind of hit the tipping point and be able to, to really move that forward. But what's the biggest, what's been the biggest obstacle aside from the environmental issues that have come up? You know, I think the challenge of just uh, being in the city, the, the environmental challenge is, is really the big hurdle in that um, there's a, there's a big kind of lagoon in the middle of the golf course. And that's, that's the area where all the environmental uh, questions are. And so the city has some requirements in terms of what they need to do to be complying with, uh, you know, federal statutes or, or, or whatnot gets real into the weeds. But, um, and so, whatever we would ever need to do as a restoration would need to relate to that. And so that in some ways kind of has to be the, the driving force uh, behind some of that stuff. In the last year, one thing that we've done that's been, that's been kind of neat is in addition to the great routing, the, McKenzie had some of his kind of typical uh, exciting green complexes. And as you can imagine, over time, those shrunk. Uh, and so now a lot of the, the greens are kind of a, a simple oval shape. But the beauty is that the golf course had really not been, not too much had been done to it. So if you went out there on a, on a little bit of an archaeological mission to try and get a sense for what the green complex used to be and looking at an old aerial photo and an old irrigation map, uh, we flagged out wh where the outline of the green should be. And in some instances, the green should be two to three times the size that they are today. We're not talking about just adding a few feet on the edges here or there. Wow. And, and, the, and when you do that, then you get a sense for how interesting the contours were. You know, right now, there might be a pretty simple oval uh, that's fairly flat or kind of just simply pitched back to front. But when you actually map out the green uh, and you've got this, this big giant tongue in the front uh, and then big wings off to the sides, all of a sudden the, the contours that are currently adjacent to the green become part of the green and it really stands out. So we took the 18th, the, the 18th green in today's routing and just started to mow that out. Uh, and, and people can kind of get a sense for what that, that green could be. Uh, and so that's kind of exciting for people to get a sense of and see. I guess the question in a project like this is if you could execute the plan, the restoration plan that you have, um, can you still produce a golf course in that setting and in that location that is an example of what how great public golf could be, including the price point? You know, I'm, I'm assuming a fair amount of money would have to be devoted to certain restoration aspects and agronomy issues and drainage and such. So I'm asking you, is it, is it feasible that, you know, you could reproduce a golf course similar to what existed in 1932 with modern agronomy that is still really attractively priced for the local players? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, for so many people uh, who are, who might not be golfers, Right their their impression of golf is that it's you know it's an exclusive game it's an expensive game it's a 
pompous game, you know, however you want to phrase it, right? Mm -hmm. And Sharp Park today is the poster child for what municipal golf is, right? Uh, if you were to go out there on any given day, you would see people probably from age 7 to 92. You would see all kinds of different backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, professions, um, cultures, everything. It, it, it's uh, as it is today. It's a it's a thriving. It, it does a wonderful business today. It's a thriving golf course. Uh, it's got a beautiful old simple clubhouse. That's kind of a community hub, and so it's everything that's right about golf. We we can and uh, and we will eventually uh, restore the golf course. And to your point, you know, make all those upgrades. And in order, and one of the key elements is to do that is is we want we want the ethos of Sharp Park to remain. We want it to be uh, a community hub. We want it to be a place for locals. But knowing how special it is and it, and it was, if we were able to restore it, that would certainly attract people from around the country and around the world. And those people probably could could pay a little more uh, or a lot more. But we, we still want it to be a, a community golf course. In order to do that, yeah, we probably need to, to raise philanthropic funds. You know, it, it may not be cost feasible, particularly in the city of San Francisco, where things are very, very expensive, to, to just do that on your own. And then you would try to recoup that money through green fees. Uh, we've gone about it trying to look at it uh, from a philanthropic standpoint. And, and we have some people uh, kind of who have already been very supportive and are ready to be more supportive. Uh, and in my opinion, that that is something that, you know, the, the golf community at large would probably be supportive of as well, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, it's, it seems evident to me that over the next 10 to 20 years, the, you know, the big push on the developmental side of golf is going to be the reinvention or the repurposing of existing golf courses in in cities or even small towns uh, you know that that seems to be an easier path for development than to go out and somebody to, to buy land and to get the permits and develop it so i mean i think you'd agree that that is something that we hope to see in the next you know period of time we're getting into this new generation or this phase of really adding better architecture to you know some some pretty plain struggling golf courses but I, i'm wondering if sharp park given its background given the uh the issues that it's had of of moving forward uh, you know you, you said you've been involved for, for 10 years in the environmental thing i'm wondering if 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 sharp park is going to be a, a bright constellation in this new sky or is it going to be a warning sign and you know, that type of experience is going to dissuade municipalities from wanting to wade into this water just because there are, you know, it's so contentious, not to say Sharp Park is always contentious, but redevelopment can be a contentious issue. As you said, a lot of people don't identify with golf, don't see it as a public asset anymore. Um, I, I'm just wondering if if this is a, a, a positive, has a positive impact or if it's going to be more of a warning sign not specifically Sharp Park, but just the issues that Sharp Park is going for. Because it's so hard to get people on board, get the administrators on board, get city governments on board. You know, Winter Park is another example of it's a great example. It's a great success story, but it's a small town. The the, the, 
the, the government there is very localized and it's a, a certain demographic that is a little bit more receptive. Um, whereas where I live in, in Atlanta, there's a, a little course here, a nine hole course that I think is a perfect candidate for this kind of redevelopment. I think you could spend not too much money and get a really neat product in the winter park model that would, uh, you know, you probably pay for itself over time. But to deal with the city of Atlanta and the, the Parks Commission and the, the city government of this huge giant city, like who would want to take that on? It's, it's you know, you're just going to, you know, it's, it would you torture yourself trying to get things things done in that environment. So I, I know I'm rambling, Jay. I'm sorry, but I'm just wondering, like, is Sharp Park that kind of thing? Is, is that a warning sign or is that something that, you know, people can look will eventually be able to look to as a success story? I certainly believe it's going to be something that will eventually be looked on as a, as a success story. And I certainly hear where you're coming from and, and having lived through that there and, and other places, I, I understand the challenges of, of um, dealing with either, uh, you know, big governments or just, just challenging logistics and politics, right? To me, again, there becomes kind of a tipping point. Right, and so we're starting to see some good things happen, and when that momentum carries forward, I think it becomes easier and easier for other places to uh, to follow along. I think a couple things to to consider is that every golf course, every municipality is different, right? So the 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 site conditions are different. Everything is site specific, right? So what might be tough at one place is, is, uh, is very different at another. But once again, that would be one of my dreams would be, is there a way for whether it's some of these golf organizations, or maybe it's a new group that, that pops together that says, Hey, our passion is community golf. And we're going to create a nonprofit that's got all of these big companies behind it or these these uh, wealthy people behind it. And what we're going to do is rather than being the operator that comes into a, a community that says, I'd like to lease your golf course so that I can operate it for profit, uh, if they say, hey, our passion is community golf and we are the community golf organization – and here's what we can do: we can we can come in and and operate the golf course uh, and manage the golf course uh, for you. But we're going to be doing it in a not-for-profit basis, right? And we're going to be offering up uh, clubs to kids and balls to kids and uh, lower green fees and this, that, and the other. And we can do that because uh, you know all the golfers in America donate twenty bucks a year to us to support community golf or or whatever. One of the challenges is that, you know, governments, as we're talking about municipal golf, you know, governments aren't necessarily set up to run golf courses. That's not their day-to-day operation, right? So we're already asking them to do something outside of their comfort zone. So, yeah, if there was a, a group that was passionate about community golf that that had the expertise uh, that could do it but wasn't focused on – renting out golf carts, I think that would be good for everybody. I love the idea. I love that sentiment. In fact, there's been some 
a little bit of chatter on Twitter about something like that, setting up some kind of nonprofit organization that would be able to kind of channel money into the support of, of public and municipal golf courses. So it seems like maybe there's a little bit of momentum building for that and, and like minds are coming together. Um, it, and it, that that would be an exciting development. Uh, but just to move on, another project that you were uh, recently and still ongoing in involvement was something similar to this, something similar to what I'm talking about is it, as a redevelopment project, and that was Santa Ana. And essentially, you took an old, a very old private course, and it's still private, but completely were able to refigure it. And that, I was, I'm assuming that must have been a really exciting project for you to be able to go in and basically create a new golf course on this site that is not a job that comes around very often when you get to basically build a new golf course, especially for somebody at this stage in your career. So tell, tell me a little bit about your thought process behind the redevelopment of Santa Ana. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a wonderful project and a, it's a special place. It's in Orange County, California, for those who are familiar and have flown into and out of John Wayne Airport. Uh, the golf course is just a mile or two south of the south end of the runway. And I got excited about the project. I, I was, uh, I think, a, a last-minute addition to an interview list. Uh, got a call uh, and and was late in the game. And you know, when I was uh, talking to the club representative, I was asking, "Well, who who else are you talking to?" And so they gave me the list of six or seven names, and I thought, "Oh, well, these are all people that I." highly respect and 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 think uh, uh, I know they do great work and I said okay well these guys have done their homework they want to do something good and at that time there was no plan to redo the golf course they were just interested in uh, engaging an architect to study the golf course to look at putting together a master plan I think there was probably an assumption that we needed to redo the bunkers uh, as as most older golf courses are um, and then when I went down there and, and checked it out, uh, to me, I just saw so many great things. I mean, the area is, for those uh, who don't know, Orange County is between kind of L.A. and San Diego. And it's a, it's a thriving uh, place with, you know, a very good economy and whatnot. Beautiful weather. It's 70 and sunny, 300 plus days a year. And so here they are in this in this amazing area and they've got a golf course that um is a core golf course no houses on it no roads bisecting it perfect setup for a walking golf course you know there's about 35 feet of elevation change total pretty compact property um and and to to your point the the course that was there um essentially even though the history of the club dated back to the early 1900s the club that was there was basically a 1970s uh, Ted Robinson golf course with a lot of artificial features. So there was lots of artificial mounding. There were uh, a lot of man-made lakes. There were lakes that were at the high point of the property. There was a waterfall, a concrete-lined waterfall. There were lots of flower beds, and and over the over the decades, you know, there'd been thousands and thousands of extra trees planted. And sounds sounds lovely. It sounds like a really nice golf experience. <laughs> so it, you know, it was a nice golf course, and it was well maintained. And the people, uh, you know, the members of the club uh, were happy with it. You know, they were there and they enjoyed it. Um, but as we dove into our studies, 
what we found was that we had a lot of infrastructure issues. They were long overdue for a new irrigation system. They had some really uh, uh, rough drainage situations going on. The the bunkers kind of were past their useful life. The greens um, had all sorts of issues in terms of lack of pinnable space and some steep slopes and areas and inconsistent profiles and whatnot. Uh, their practice facilities were were compromised. You know, they were always hitting off of mats and using limited flight balls, and they had these big giant nets and poles and and whatnot. And so, as we went through the process, we we figured out they had, you know, maybe roughly five million dollars worth of deferred maintenance. And so then the question becomes: Okay, well, what do we want to do knowing that we need to address all these things. If we need new greens and we need new bunkers and we need a new irrigation system and we need new drainage, what else uh, is we can put all of that back exactly as it is, or we could try to make things better uh, if we're going to go through this whole process. And so when you studied the golf course, you found out that you know 17 out of the 18 holes, the green was elevated, so there was no ground game. I think uh, 14 or 15 out of the holes had bunker front left, bunker front right. There wasn't much variety there. They had five par threes, and four of them almost were identical in terms of yardage and layout and whatnot. So we made we engaged the membership, and we said, okay, what 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 would be some goals? And you know, we had a lot of people eager for more variety, much better practice facilities. We went down the whole list and we realized that if you were going to spend all this money to to redo the infrastructure, you could spend a whole bunch of money and put everything back exactly as it is, or you could spend the same amount, maybe plus 20%, and get a, a new golf course that maybe had much better practice facilities, had much better variety, uh, interesting shot options. We introduced the ground game all of those things. And as you know, in California with the drought, you know, they were a heavy water user. It was wall-to-wall turf with all these trees. So as part of it, we, uh, we, re- we were able to reduce the amount of playable turf by 35 plus acres. So it was a very, very exciting project in that you were able to trans, you're in a great area, good demographics, and, and had a, a, a golf course that uh, maybe architecturally wasn't as as sound as it could be. And the interesting thing about Santa Ana was it was the only club in Orange County that dated back to the early 1900s. And we said, well, you know, why don't we emphasize that? Orange County has a number of kind of resort type courses, even if they were a private club, they kind of looked and felt more like a resort. Uh, lots of lots of kind of Fazio 1980s uh, golf courses. Why don't we uh, you know, we're a golf club. There's no pool. There's no tennis. Why don't we focus on uh, being a, a golden age golf facility? And so the membership voted to to do that. We were able to reroute the whole golf course and craft it, craft the new golf course in a way that looks and feels like it's from the early 1900s. So it's something that I'm certainly proud of and, and uh, had had a ball working on. And to your point, I think that is certainly a model that travels well. I'm sure you can think of three facilities in Atlanta, and there's probably three more in uh, in the D.C. area, and there's probably four more in Chicago and five in Dallas. That 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 uh, that same scenario might apply. 
you started working for uh, Robert Trent Jones II Jr., Bob, in 2000. I'm wondering, uh, when you were getting your degrees at, at University of Wisconsin, what, what was your knowledge or education in, in golf course architecture at, at that time leading up to the point when you started your career? So I got into golf. You know, golf's been a part of my life my whole life. Uh, my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. He was a caddy at Beverly Country Club. And when he and my mom built their first house, he, he built a putting green in the backyard. And so I, uh, my whole life, you know, I've had a little putting green in the backyard. And, and I like to, to joke with people that as a two-year-old, I probably could have beaten Tiger. That at age three, he probably passed me. But as at, <laughs> at age two, I pro- probably had him. You had that one good year. Yeah. <laughs> so so golf was really always part of my life and as a little kid I you know we'd go out to dinner and I would flip the placemat over and in crayon draw golf holes and we we always took road trips my mom was claustrophobic and didn't like to fly so we'd take road trips and I'd just sit there with my head plastered to the window for 16 hours and and envision golf holes in the farm fields that we were driving past right and it wasn't till high school where my parents actually were the ones who kind of gave me the kick in the butt and said, you know, if you're going to go to college, why don't you do golf architecture? I, I was always fascinated by it, but never really thought that it could be a profession or didn't realize that, you know, that's what people did. It was clear that's all I ever wanted to do. All my notebooks in school were just filled with golf holes and everything. But they're the ones who who said, "Yeah, you can you can go into business at any time in your life if this is your passion. That's what you should go chase and do." And so, as you mentioned, I went to the University of Wisconsin, got a degree in landscape architecture. Um, recognized that most people, recognizing that most people who got into golf architecture ended up getting a degree in landscape architecture. That's what they did. Um, and so that was kind of the path that I took. Ironically, uh, the course that I worked at in high school, the course that I played in the state championship in high school, uh, the University of Wisconsin golf course, and I did a year-long independent study project uh, while in college designing a mock second course there. That golf course was designed by RTJ2. So there, it just happened to have some some synergy there. Uh, and so out of out of school – that made for uh, a pretty easy interview talking point to talk about University right. Ridge. I guess I'm asking specifically, what did you know about the history of, of architecture at that point? Because to, that is an interesting time period, the late 90s, when you're in school. You know, there, the availability of information is nowhere near what it is now. The internet was just on the rise. But even at that period in time, like pre-Golf Club Atlas, you know, it, there's there's really no access to historical records. You could read some old books, but it, it, I don't think that anybody outside of like you know the Tom Dokes of the world and the guys who are doing restorations like had a real clear picture of historical architecture or mid-century architecture. There just wasn't a, the availability of that information. Uh, so I'm I'm curious, like what did what did you actually know? I, I know you, I bet you I'm assuming you know a million times more now about it than you did even upon graduation. Yeah. So I think, you know, at that time, I remember as a kid, 
uh, in middle school or high school reading the different golf magazines. You know, there would be uh, write-ups on different courses. Obviously, you're seeing the different courses on on TV. I remember taking a family vacation down to Hilton Head, and I was so eager to to play Harbor Town. And one of the toughest days ever was uh, we had our tea time lined up to play Harbor Town, and I you know I woke up at five in the morning and I was looking out the window excited, and and we got rained out that day, oh. <laughs> and there was no <laughs> there was no makeup day. So luckily, a couple years a year later, a couple years later, we were back and we got to play. But so I had exposure to great golf. Like I said, my family kind of took all these road trips. I had a chance to to see Pebble Beach and to play Pebble Beach when I was in middle school or high school. And like I said, Harbor Town. But in terms of uh, access to, like you say, old private clubs of historical significance and, and great architecture, there probably wasn't uh, much more than, than reading about them in the, in the Golf Digest top top 100 list and and you know understanding about pine valley from that front uh exactly yeah you know as, as you mentioned uh yeah the difference between 1996 and 2005 in terms of just internet access is pretty pretty remarkable <laughs> yeah i mean it really enabled a lot of people who are not in the business to become literal and not just not just um recreational historians but like true historians the availability of information went from zero to 100 you know seemingly overnight the availability of of images and his club resources and the way that people could communicate their findings to each other it's really remarkable so you started to go work with with bob jones and that's a very unique environment isn't it um the Jones family is, you know, royalty in golf course architecture. What did you take from that? And, and what was your insight into the way that that family kind of positioned themselves or held themselves up at that time? You know, you worked for, for what, I think, 12 years. Yeah, so you, you must have had a pretty, pretty interesting peek behind the curtain. Yeah. So I started uh, my actual actually my first day of work was the day before 9-11. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I certainly recognize, uh, as I get older and older is just, just what a factor sometimes luck is, you know, if my first day would have been two weeks later, they probably would have told me not to come, you know? Yeah. Uh, but so, so yeah, it was, it was a absolutely awesome experience. If you think about it, if you're growing up as a kid and all you ever wanted to do is to uh, design golf courses. And so now right out of school, you get the opportunity to go work for one of the the big names in golf with not only that firm's history, you know, that firm uh, had its own kind of 30, 40 year history at that time. But then obviously, as you referred to uh, Bobby's, Bobby's dad, RTJ Sr. and the legacy there, yeah, to be able to to walk into that office and know that you know in the basement there were uh, little storage bins of old blueprints, and you could you know go look at you know the different courses that they'd worked on over thirty years, but they also had uh, you know there were you know plans from courses his dad had worked on and things like that. Yeah, you're you're a kid in the candy store, right? So here you are, you're 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 at this this famous place. I think I know this is how I felt as a kid, uh, and I would imagine many others who aren't 
in the golf industry. Maybe now they have a little better access to information, like you said, but you just assume growing up that golf architecture maybe is like other industries. When I hear about the famous Robert Trent Jones II organization, I think of a big organization. <laughs> maybe there would be lots and lots of people and a fancy headquarters and all kinds of stuff like that. And in reality, you know, they worked out of an old house in Palo Alto. Uh, mm-hmm. I distinctly remember the the orange carpeting uh, that that uh, had a unique smell to it. Uh, <laughs> like shag, <laughs> was it like really bad old carpet? Yeah, there was some special old 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 carpeting that had a very very unique smell to it. Uh, and and for the most part, it's a it's a small small group. There were a handful of designers and a couple support staff there. So it was very, very much a kind of a, a, a family, small operation, right? And to be able to, to enter that world and to be part of all that was, was just awesome. You know, the first couple of years that I was there, I was just kind of helping other other architects, supporting them, whether it's kind of redrawing plans or doing area takeoffs and quantities or setting up base maps and things. But at that time, you know, John Strawn was, and I don't know if you know John or not, but he's a very interesting, uh, great guy character. He was kind of running the business side of things and, and handling a lot of the business development. So he'd go over to Europe uh, for a couple of weeks and he'd come back and he will have met with, you know, 10 potential clients and he'll drop uh, topo maps for 10 different sites on the on the table. And and wow. there's opportunities to, you know, start diving into those and, and coming up with conceptual routing plans and, and things like that. So, uh, I mean, it was just the ultimate uh, opportunity and experience to to get exposed to. I think that that going back to this concept of the availability of information, it always stuns me how in golf course architecture circles and communication, the way we communicate, that that so little is actually known. We know everything there is to know, not really, but like almost everything there is to know about what happened pre nineteen, you know, thirty in golf. You know, there's just so many people pouring over those those old texts and informations and periodicals, etc. And we pay so little attention, true historic attention to what happened after World War II, you know, the, the Robert Trent Jones era. And it's just so easy to it's it's really lazy, frankly, the way that that the Jones family, especially Robert Trent Jones, is dismissed. You know, the architecture is just not taken seriously. It's considered, you know, a down period stylistically of architecture. And there's no context given to why why that is or or support given to why that opinion might be valid or and certainly no very little uh true analysis of, of the factors that contributed to the way that architecture turned out the way it did so I'm, I'm curious like what it's you hear people bash it a lot so and you're close to the jones family i'm assuming you're still closer you had this period where you're inside of it did that did that ever seep through that you know, Robert Shent Jones, it, it, I felt the tide started to turn right about the time we started to glamorize, over-glamorize the 1920s. Did, did that opinion ever seep into the office, or were you aware of it? Are you aware of it now? What do you think about when you when you kind of hear this categorical dismissal of the Jones family? So a lot of that, for me, kind of relates back to, again, what I thought as a kid, right, growing up. I was right. under depression as a kid that the best golf courses were 
the byproduct of the best architect, right? That was it, right? So you had the best golf course were, was always done by the best architect. So um, what became very clear to me when I had the opportunity to work for the Jones Group was that there is a client involved and uh, ultimately the the role of the architect is to fulfill the dream of the client and every client is very different so some client their goal is to sell houses and other clients their house their their dream is to fill hotel rooms and another client their their goal is to build their own personal dream dream course and their uh, favorite aesthetic is lots of lakes right and another client wants to build the hardest golf course on earth and another client wants to create a true uh, great golden age strategic golf course right so there you've got six different clients and yet the role of the architect is to try and help them achieve their goals so what become what what became very clear in my eyes was that uh, many of the golf courses that we hold near and dear today or that many of the architects that we hold near and dear to today were somewhat a, of a byproduct of um, maybe the, the times and what was going on. You know, if you think about the early 1900s, why were people building golf courses? Well, they were building golf courses because they loved golf, right? It was truly a sporting endeavor. Where were they building golf courses? Well, they didn't have modern earth-moving equipment. They didn't have the same kind of turf grass uh, research. So they were building golf courses where they would fit naturally. So they would they, they decided, hey, we want to build a golf course. Let's go find the suitable piece of land to build it on. And uh, and then oftentimes they engaged somebody with, with great talent, whether that was, you know, Ross or McKenzie or Tillinghast or Thomas or whoever, and they did great things. Uh, fast forward to the middle of the century or, or 1950 to 1990, and all of a sudden things have evolved and changed. And... Maybe we're building golf courses in swamps and deserts and mountaintops, and maybe we're building them again to sell houses or to fill hotel rooms, uh, as opposed to just building a uh, something for the play of golf. And maybe we're using whatever site is available, as opposed to going out and finding the right site. Uh, so those were certainly some things that I took away and, and kind of feel like people maybe don't think about as much. Having said that, you know, I, I certainly prefer golden age golf and strategic golf to uh, a lot of what we saw from 1950 to 1990 in terms of uh, there were a lot more artificial features. Uh, there maybe wasn't as much strategy and, and maybe the focus wasn't so much on, on the golf as the development around it. Uh, well, do you really think that there? What, let's stick with Jones, okay? Let's stick with Jones. Do you really think that that um, RTJ was not building strategic golf courses? No. Again, every single thing is site specific. 
uh, and client specific, right? So hard to put blanket generalizations uh, on there. But I think you could also make the case that um, in in certain instances, some things post war were more utilitarian, whether it was the the runway tees, and you know there was a lot of bracketing, uh, bunkering off the tee, and things like that, um, and you know the the parcels of land might have been different that didn't maybe yield themselves to wider corridors with different angles or options of play uh, so i again i think it's hard to use a generalization i think it's it's far more site specific uh, but i think if you study jones senior work you'd see a wide variety of stuff but you would also see some patterns emerge that would tend towards more penal and less strategic. Mm-hmm. I, I think I wish because information is so widely available and it's just out there. I mean, if, if you're getting into golf course architecture right now, there's a, there's a, there's a playbook. I mean, you can just go on, go on social media, you can go on blogs, you can just, you can find out what you should like and what you shouldn't and what's considered good and what's considered bad. And, and a lot of it's a matter of taste, but it's right there. It's just out there for you. And I just, I wish people would keep more of an open mind and approach different periods with the same, you don't have to like it. I mean, I would never try to convince anybody to like something, but to understand what, and going back to what you were just saying, like understand why things change and how they change and what the motivations are and who's responsible for it. I just wish people would approach it with more of an open mind instead of just taking as dogma, this is good, this is great, this is bad. I mean, I actually think you could go do a, a closer clinical analysis of golden age courses and, and, and find, and, and maybe reassess the so-called greatness of, of that era. You know, anybody's top five, eight courses might be really good, but like what, you know, are the rest of the golf courses really that good? Are we actually looking at them in through the right lens? Are we actually seeing what was there or are we seeing what we're, what we want to see? And the same goes with Trent Jones and, other designers from the fifties. I mean, we, we look at these courses and say, Oh, they love, they love trees and they love these certain types of bunkers. Well, the golf courses evolve and change. That's not necessarily what was put in the ground in 1952. So I just wish people would come at it with, with more of an open mind and a curiosity and, and trace the arc of golf course history and, and maybe come to, if not like, but an appreciation for why, why things are or were the way they were. If if people are are passionate about it and really want to learn more about it, I would encourage them to ask two questions each time they visit a golf course. And it, w- it might be hard to to gain the answer just from the the head pro, but you know if you get invited to go play at a club and there's the club historian there or something, you know, I, I would ask who who was the client and what was the goal what were the what were the what was the architect charged with what what was the the mandate from the client right what were they trying to achieve and then the second question to ask what were the constraints you know so i i've visited a number of golf courses and you know if if i just go play a golf course it's very hard to turn the brain off right i'm always thinking about what would i would have what would I do? Would I have routed it differently? Would I have put holes over there? Or this, that, and the other. And m- many times I've been fortunate enough to talk to the people involved and, and ask, hey, you know, why didn't you take the fourth hole over there 
there's some pretty cool pockets of land over there that looked like it would have made a better golf hole than the current fourth hole. And more often than not, you'll get the answer, well, that's where we wanted to go, but there was a, there was a salamander over there and right. we, weren't yeah. allo- we weren't allowed to or whatever. Those are the types of things that I don't think many people um, get a full backstory on and, and therefore you can get a, a, a little bit better appreciation for, for what you see and experience. Yeah. And we'll get off this subject in just a minute, I know. Uh, but you have a unique insight into this. Just to kind of finalize this this thought, is there such a thing as a Jones family style? I mean, is like a, a, a certain way to approach golf course design that runs through the generations? Uh, to me, no. The um, There might be. That's what I thought. <laughs> to me, there may. And again, Bobby probably, Bobby or Reese would probably be the better ones to answer. There may be consistencies in how they ran their businesses but in Mm -hmm. terms of the work that's in the field i would say uh no i can speak for just my time at the the jones firm but um you know one of the things that i appreciated about being there was that they uh the the project architects or the design associates whatever title you want to give them were afforded uh the opportunity to do different things. And so, you know, I think the Jones two group has, I don't know, probably close to 300 courses now, you know, whenever I would go visit one of those properties, I would try not to know who worked on it and see if I could figure that out. (laughs) Uh, which, Mm -hmm. which guy in the office, uh, was the one spending, uh, their time on it. So, um, I think whether it was RTJ Senior, I, I know from the RTJ Two side of things, there's a pretty diverse range of of products that you would see. Uh, I haven't played a ton of Reese courses. I've I've certainly witnessed them. I do think, uh, from my viewing, uh, that seems to be far more formulaic and and more more consistent from one course to the other, uh, what comes out of, of that office. Um, but to, to put a blanket over those three and say, there's some common, uh, theme, uh, maybe, maybe the way they run a business, but maybe not necessarily what goes in the ground. You mentioned routing a, a number of times, and on Twitter recently, you've posted a couple of juxtaposition, two different courses, one modern, one historic, and just to kind of generate discussions about their routing. To me, routing is almost, unless you're an architect or unless you do, you do what you've done, what you just suggested doing and, and showed up and asked about, well, why didn't you do this and what were your restrictions, as a, a golf course enthusiast, it's almost impossible to talk about routing. You know a bad one when you see it? You know, and there could be reasons for that. But, you know, if, if they're crazy walks between holes and just things are, you know, disjointed, it's bad. But it's really hard to put your finger on on a good routing. You know, and it's hard to to say because it's not there. You can't it's hard to say, like, well, what wasn't what didn't they do? You know, it's hard. You can kind of just look at what they did do and see if it works. What so what is your what is your takeaway about routing? I mean, is it is that anything that even can be discussed? It seems like it's just you have to be there doing it to understand it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm sure that people who are passionate about golf and golf design, um, you know, can and who have played a lot of golf courses can can talk about it um, 
you know, somewhat intelligently. I think the point that you're making about having been through it is is a huge difference and probably offers uh, um, you the ability to have a greater understanding of some of the the challenges and or opportunities that may or may not have existed. I think that's one of the unique things about, you know, unfortunately, when you think about uh, the decades, right? So uh, you think from 1970 to 1995, you had probably a couple hundred people in the U.S. uh, or maybe worldwide routing golf courses, right? If you think about all the different golf architects and all of the design associates who worked at big name firms, Mm -hmm. they were, uh, and there was lots of work, right? There was all sorts of courses being built all over the place. Those people were routing golf courses. Uh, Think about today, you know, I'm 40 years old. How many people under 40, 40 years or under, who don't work for a big name firm have routed a golf course? (laughs) Hardly any. Yeah, I don't know, you know, um to me that was one of the great, you know, if you if you were to and if you were to ask any any younger person now, okay, you could go work for Gil Hans or you could go work for Robert Trent Jones too. Right? I I would imagine if you did a straw poll, uh <laughs> there there might be a, a, the vast majority uh might say we want to work for Gil, right? We got Yeah interesting projects and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I've met Gil and I like Gil and I think very highly of his, his work and he's he's a great guy and a great architect. But if you go to work for Gil, you're not going to get to route a golf course. That's what Gil does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. You're going you're gonna to be on the tractor, you know, which is fun too. That's what attracts people to the business these days. But yeah. absolutely. That's a, it's a wonderful way to learn. It's a great opportunity. You're going to get uh, exposed to all sorts of of wonderful things, but one of the things that I certainly appreciated about uh, having the opportunity to work for the Jones firm was that there were opportunities to work on on routings and get get exposed to that and have the opportunity to do that stuff. Yeah, now nowadays there's maybe what five people that that get to route golf courses. Uh, it seems pretty, like it, yeah, pretty, pretty rare deal. So uh, I love routings. To me, you know, it, it's like a giant puzzle. Uh, and to your point about the future of golf maybe lying in in reconfiguring existing golf courses, if you think about those existing golf courses, more often than not, you know they're landlocked within a an urban or a suburban environment, and that really becomes very much uh, a great challenge and uh, the ultimate kind of puzzle if you will. If you think of the golf holes as each being a puzzle piece and then you throw in a, a practice facility, or something, you, know, you basically have 20 puzzle pieces. How can you uh, create the best puzzle uh, out, of, out of that? You know, Obviously, we'd all love the opportunity to work on a blank canvas with thousands of acres of sand dunes uh, and, and come up with a routing, but how can you take 120 acres and get the most out of it uh, and and create compelling golf, I think, is an interesting challenge as well. Yeah. What do you think the what's the learning curve like in routing on a neutral property on a blank property? I mean, you did it on paper so many times. You just talked about it. You've done. You did it at Santa Ana. Um, what is how how long does it take 
to get really good at it. I mean, I think Tom Doak was probably born with the gift. Others, others as well. Can you be good right away? I think so. I think uh, there's talent to it. I think having just a, a great understanding of of the game of golf, having an understanding of of land and and the opportunity. You know, oftentimes you need to move dirt. Uh, obviously Tom and Bill and Ben have done a great job of identifying clients where maybe you don't have to move a lot of dirt, but I think Tom would be one to tell you that, uh, on many projects, even if you don't move a lot of dirt, it's moving the right dirt and, and it finding the right spot to do it. Uh, as I mentioned it being kind of like a puzzle, everything's connected to everything else. So every, every little change that you make has an impact, uh, down the road. It's a snowball effect. And that's where, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I'll talk to an existing course or, or, or club and, and they'll say, oh yeah, we have an issue on our fifth hole. We just want to change the fifth hole. Uh, and, and, you know, whoever it is, it's a green chairman or whoever, they've already kind of figured out what they want to do to solve the problem. And then you kind of have to walk them through, well, okay, well, if you've if you do this, now you've created a safety issue over here. And by doing what you've done, you've now created four holes in a row that are 410 yards and, and whatever. And, and so what a lot of people don't understand is in order to solve one problem on a golf course, you might need to impact three or four different spots in order to get it right. Um, so I do think there's talent. I, I, I certainly feel that you can get better over time and, and learn little lessons uh, over time about the best ways to to work into and out of corners. That's always interesting. Um, and then again, it, it all boils down to what is your what is your goal? What's the goal of the client? Is it to create something that's fun, or is it to create something that hard that's hard that can create an impact on the routing as well? The topic of developers like Mike Kaiser, Mark Parson, and you know people who kind of hold the keys to uh, resort development, you know, beachside, oceanfront, dunesy development around the world. The people who hold the keys to that, the topic comes up is, are they just going to continue to uh, use the same four architects over and over again? Or is there going to be a time when they want something new or they find economic value in bringing on a, a new face for their projects? I wonder if, though, this younger generations, people like you, your age, and, and even younger, I wonder if the routing issue, not for you because you've done it, but for other guys who have been largely shapers but who have a lot of talent, I wonder if the routing issue is going to hold them back to be given a, a, a great property with no routing experience. It, how do you see that shaking out into the into the future and, and what it will take for, to get guys from your generation into up to that level and get those types of sites? Well, it's a great question. And I think, you know, there's, again, I think part of the business that maybe uh, people who just love golf and, and hang out talking golf on Twitter or Golf Club Atlas may or may not understand is kind of the, the boardroom side of things, right? Right or wrong, um, who gets a job sometimes is more about who can give the best presentation in the boardroom as opposed to who can design the best golf course or who can, who can build the best green complex, 
right? So that's a side of the business that I think is uh, maybe undervalued or under discussed, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point about uh, you know the the Kaisers or Parsonans of the world and 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 kind of their game plan moving forward. Yeah, I think that's it's certainly an interesting dilemma. You've got all sorts of great talent out there. There's lots of people um, who are obviously very talented, have worked at special places, who have come, uh, who have worked uh, with other talented people. Um, and then there's people with different skill sets. Uh, one of the things that I'm most interested in moving forward is are there opportunities for partnerships or collaborations uh, around the world? Um, you know, if you think, you know, we talked earlier about 30 years ago, there might have been 200 people routing golf courses all over the world. Now there might be five. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if um, uh, if a talented guy from the U.S. and a talented guy from Australia got together and did a course in Australia and got together and did a course in the U.S. Uh, you know, that, that, those things are interesting to me as to what the future uh, may hold. Um, in terms of, you know, the Kaisers and the Parsonans, we, we'd all love to work with them. I've been fortunate enough to meet meet uh, the Kaisers on a number of occasions and, and whatnot. You know, they don't have any reason why they need to. They've got a winning formula today. It's, uh, you know, it's easy for people uh, on the outside to say, do something different and, and take a risk. Uh, but if it were, if it were your business and you had a winning formula, how inclined would you be to, to take a big risk? You know, having said that, you know, guys like me and a lot of younger guys, we all want our shot. We all believe we can do it and have success. And, you know, uh, so we'd love the opportunity and think that there isn't a risk, but easy for us to say we're not the ones yeah. who write the check. <laughs> exactly. I'm coming around to the belief that until the golfer, the Kaiser's famous retail golfer, the the, the player who supports these locations until they demand something different until they're tired of seeing Corin Crenshaw, Gil Hans, Gil hasn't worked with Kaiser, but until they're tired of seeing that there's, yeah, there's really no reason to change. I mean, it wouldn't, there's no benefit. There's no upside. You can't, if you're selling out your product, you can't sell more by bringing on a new face. So there's really no, there's just no motivation to, to do it. And you know, you know what you get, you know, you're going to get something classic. Well, and I think, again, we, we've chatted a little bit today about some of the maybe underreported sides of business. But if you're uh, a client and you've worked with somebody before and had a positive working relationship and understand how somebody works, that's valuable to you. I think one thing that people may underestimate or may not realize is when you work on a golf project, uh, I, I won't speak for everybody, but I know for me, it's it's an all-in deal. Uh, you know, it typically takes two to three years from start to finish. Could take much longer. Um, and during that time, you know, you're spending as much time with uh, that client as you are your own family. You're often moving to the site to be there. Uh, you're there on a daily basis. 
that one of the great takeaways uh, from any project is the relationships that you create. My life is so much better because of the people that I've had the opportunity to to work with and work for, and I consider them to be friends and mentors and people who will be in my life forty years after the project is over. So yeah, uh, that that's a that's a pretty big part of. I think if you ask Bill Coor, who you know has his pick of the litter of where he wants to work, right? He'll say one of the big factors is who do I want to spend my time with, right? Who do I want to uh, spend the next couple of years interacting with? Yeah, exactly. Um, so thinking about this, yeah, I'm really I'm so fascinated in, like I said, people your age and even younger um, who who are right on the fringe. Of of being the next Tom Doak and Bill Corr and Gil Hans and David Kidd, which is which you assume is going to happen at some point. Those guys aren't going to live forever. There'll be some turnover, but so much of what you see, a lot of the shaping that you see on these projects, starts to kind of look a little similar. A lot of the bunker shaping. I mean, it looks beautiful. I mean, it's hard. You shouldn't. It's not a criticism, but I'm wondering if it might not might not be a smart idea for. If given the opportunity, younger de- young designers would start doing something different to separate themselves, to kind of create a, a separate identity. Because if you are looking, like if I am Mike Kaiser or I am going to develop something and I say, I'm going to go with a young younger designer, I'm not going to go with Doak, and then I have 10 applicants before me. Yes, relationships and presentation is going to be important in how I select my job. But if I look at their work and what they're capable of, and it all looks kind of the same, that doesn't give me the the real information that I need. They can tell me what they're going to do, but why not see it? So do you think it's important for people, your designers, your age and younger to start doing something that's going to give them a little bit more of an identity or or something that's going to buck the trend a little bit? Yeah, I think that that's a, an interesting um, thing to study, right? If you look back, you know, Pete Dye talked about he wanted to do something different from Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Doak will tell you he wanted Jones to- was doing something different than his predecessors, right? And Tom wanted to do something different than Pete, right? Yeah, um, you know, Tom's a great example. I mean, he he was radical almost in his thinking, you know, we take it for granted now because it's common. It, it, it won the day, you know, minimalism and naturalism won the argument, but that was not being done. And he was, he was not afraid to ruffle feathers and to step on toes if he had to. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that there's something to be said for trying to, you know, separate yourself. We're all interested in kind of, taking the art to a different level or trying to to do something different and interesting. I think a lot of it just boils down to opportunity. You know, um, Tom breaks out, you know, he obviously did a lot of writing and, and had a couple other projects, but obviously Pacific Dunes puts him on the map. It's a big success. And now future clients who have an oceanfront site call Tom, right? So Tom, you know, somewhat gets typecast as the guy to call to do uh, sandy sites adjacent to the water. Pretty good way to be typecast, but it's good. Uh, yep. right? it's good little niche to be in. Right. So you 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 kind of end up keep doing the same type of work. RTJ two, 
uh, does successful developments where they're selling houses at a high rate or filling hotel rooms. And so the guy who wants to do that next sees that that worked well over here and he wants that guy, right? So you get a lot of that. So I think for the younger guys, uh, if there's somebody who who worked under one umbrella and kind of built bunkers for, for one guy for a long period of time, that's kind of uh, what they've done and what they know. And, and I'm sure they'd like the opportunity to do something different if they get that opportunity. But I think the, the, the challenge is how many opportunities are you going to get? You know, I would love to, to work on a course where we could craft something that feels a little bit, uh, you know, Mick Rayner ish. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I'd like to do that at some point. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different ideas you'd like to try out. How many different projects can you work on in one year? How many different projects do you have lined up to do different things? And most importantly, is that what the client wants or is willing to do? Or are they hiring you because they liked what you did at the last place? Right. You know, I think Tom would tell you he wanted to do a reversible course for 20 years. He just couldn't find the client to, to go along with it. So mm -hmm. I think that, uh, yeah, to your point, younger guys would certainly probably like to try out different things. Uh, the opportunities to do that are, are pretty few and far between. And often, oftentimes when you get that, when you get an opportunity to work on a project, more often than not, the client's probably desiring something similar to what you've done before. Have you in the past felt the freedom when you're, or when you're interviewing for a job or, or doing a uh, request for a proposal to throw something out there that's different than you've done in the past? Well, sure. And, and everything is site specific, right? So I've, you know, I've had, you know, four or five big projects that I've worked on over over the last fifteen years. Uh, Chambers Bay is drastically different than the Patriot. You know, one is is waterfront and it's a sandy site and old sand and gravel mine. The Patriot, outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, had four different environments. There were canyons, there were prairies, there were woodlands, there was uh, kind of a floodplain area. You know, so two drastically different sites. So the routing was completely different. The uh, the details were different. Century World in, in central Wisconsin was a RTJ2 original golf course that there were opportunities to improve the routing in certain spots, to add a lot more variety, to do different things, but they wanted to keep with a, a look somewhat consistent with the, the history of the club. So that's a very different look and feel to those other two. Santa Ana uh, is a very different look and feel based on on that site so everything's site specific and i think that talented architects are capable of doing a wide range of work uh and doing work that's uh appropriate for that site and for that client and if we do enter this period of of redevelopment of as we've been saying you know public places suburban courses uh, there, there'll be even more opportunity, I think, because if you're going to go in and, and just kind of erase what was there before, if that's possible, because it's just worn out or wasn't very good, there is an opportunity there for some kind of more creative ideas, you know, things that are not just kind of running with the with this, you know, what I call neoclassical naturalism, just what kind of this 
mode, this movement that we've been in for about 20 years. I'm curious to see who's going to make the jump, who's going to be able to land a job that allows them to kind of switch gears a little bit. And it goes back to, you mentioned it before about going in front of a board and presenting your case, you know, and, and basically getting the job through an interview. That That's kind of a that could be a big hang up because you're a lot of times with these municipalities or, or whoever's on the board is is not as as geeked on golf course architecture as I am or you are or a lot of the, a lot of our friends are so they don't know the the the, the up and coming names but if we saw down in Florida, like, but if, but if Tom Fazio walks in or, or Tommy Fazio walks in and he's got Nick Price with him, I mean, that's going to, that's going to make an impression versus a guy that you work with. If like if Brett Hochstein goes in and has his proposal, you know, I think we'd probably pick Brett, but the board is not going to know who he is, you know? So th- there's, there's another element there that even though these projects and these jobs are going to come up, you're kind of trusting people beyond your control to make smart decisions about which way to, which way which direction to move in yeah i think you know depending on whether it's a municipality or a, a private club uh, when you get into that process you can get a sense pretty early on what their level of understanding you know as i mentioned earlier uh, regarding santa Ana, one of the questions i ask is well who else are you talking to Right, you can get right. you can get a pretty good sense, uh, maybe what their level of understanding is by knowing who else that they're talking to. In, in the case of municipal work, if there's an RFP out there, and oftentimes they kind of share how they will weight things. If they're going to weight things based on the number of courses you've done in the past, or you know, if it if it's a volume game as opposed to a a quality game, <laughs> um, you can try to get a sense for that early on. But yeah, it, it's it's our job to educate membership, to educate councils, to bring them up to speed as to uh, why we can deliver the best product for them and why it's in their best interest to hire us. Yeah. It's just the starstruck element is hard to hard to overcome. But that was a good way to bring it full circle. We'll start to we'll start to I know you've got a, a big day ahead of you, I'm sure. Let's start to close this out. Just real quickly, I'm curious to get your your uh your thoughts on this. Did you ever think that your home state, Wisconsin, would turn into such a, a national golf destination? Did you have any clue that it had that much potential? Um you know, you, you certainly love the state that you grow up in and, and, and uh, want that to be the case. How those things come about uh, is, is, is interesting. But um, no, I, I don't think, you know, I, I certainly knew or believed there were great places to develop all throughout the state. But what you're finding now with golf development is it's very different than than at other times in its history. It used to be that you developed golf where the people were. Now it seems like some of the more heralded or interesting places that are developed are, are in super remote locations. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's wonderful to see that Wisconsin has become a great golf, de- golf destination, not only for, um, for fun, fun golf, uh, natural golf, but, uh, championship golf as well. Uh, it's kind of taken, 
center stage as well. So it's a, it's an exciting thing to see. Right. Have you been to Sand Valley? I have. I've, yeah. uh, I've played the first course and walked uh, walked Mammoth Dunes bef- just before it was done. Uh, and uh, and I, my favorite on the whole property was the little short course, the Sandbox. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that might be mine too. That thing is such a trip. <laughs> I love that. Yep. So give us, give us one place that isn't Sand Valley, that isn't Aaron Hills, that's not La Sonia. What's a great little course that you're familiar with in Wisconsin that, that maybe people should check out? Well, I'll certainly uh, tell people to to go play Century World because, <laughs> of course, because <laughs> I spent a lot of time there, and I think uh, it's it, it's certainly worthy. And it was the first destination golf course in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if people are looking for a, a fun little golf course to play and a great little destination, Door County, Wisconsin, is if you're looking on the map, it's kind of the finger that sticks into. Uh, Lake Michigan in the in the northeast, and uh-huh. Door, Door County is, is is kind of a quaint area. There's no chains, no chain restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, kind of has a New England feel to it, if you will. And Peninsula State Park has uh, a little golf course there. That's that's a fun one to play. Uh, got some interesting holes and some some neat little views. Um, that that would be a good place uh, if people are on a vacation uh, or want to go see a neat part of Wisconsin to go check out. What's the best modern golf course you've played or your favorite that you had no involvement in building? Um, probably Friars Head. Um, I, I loved Sand Hills as well. But Sand Hills was such a perfect canvas. Um, I, I was blown away with how good Friars Head was, uh, and even though it was a in what I what I consider to be a great canvas or a canvas that I would love the opportunity to work on, it certainly didn't have uh, as many natural elements to work with as as a place like Sand Hills rankings you can take them or leave them but for whatever it's worth friar's head is is charging up the the golf digest rankings at least and i i've i've said this a few times it wouldn't surprise me if in 40 years friar's head's not rated above sand hills yeah i think you know when you get into ratings that's such a <laughs> such a uh uh, a rabbit hole to go down and, mm-hmm. and what are people rating? Are they actually rating the architecture? Are they rating the conditioning? Are they rating the golf experience? How influenced were they by how exclusive the place was or how well they were treated that day and what kind of lunch they had and all, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, for, for me personally, I kind of put golf courses into three categories. You've got uh, places to go hit a ball, Right, just a place where you go with your buddies. Uh, people maybe take a six pack with them. Places where people learn to play the game. Uh, you know, just just a place to go hit a ball. And, and those are are probably the lifeblood of of golf. Right, those are super important places. Then you've got this huge, huge group in the middle, which are golf courses that have been developed. They're they're managed probably by some kind of man company they you know probably have good maintenance there was kind of a formal design to them and everything but they're all just kind of lost in the middle and so and, and there's a range within that group and then you've got if you love golf you have to play here before you die right mm-hmm. 
And, right, okay. and it, and it, it, it rain, the spectrum is pretty wide because the, the landscapes are so different, right? Sand Hills is nothing like Friar's Head and that's nothing like, uh, you know, something in Australia or something in Scotland. Um, and to me, you know, once, once you're in that category, does it really matter whether you're, you know, at the top of, of that category or the bottom of that category? In my mind, it doesn't really matter because you've got a unique golf course that's tailor-made to its site that is worth playing because if you're a golfer, uh, the experience of playing there will transcend the game and give you lifetime memories and something to, to take away. And I think people would be um, better served if they got exposed to more of those as opposed to trying to, to put one over the other. Right? Well, that's for sure. Yeah. Like I said, you could take or leave rankings, but it seems to me that, you know, just because of the current architectural period that we're in, um, the post Pacific dunes era that Sandhills is recognized still, and it's still fairly fresh. It's still recognized as the touchstone, the thing that started it all. So there's a there's a holiness about it that uh, and a reverence that we hold for it. Rightly so. I'm not arguing against that at all. But but it there's there's just uh, still some some uh, tailwinds that's pushing Sandhills, which I don't think will exist. You know, in a few decades, I think everything will balance out. We'll see new trends and movements come into golf. And then Friar's Head may be perceived as the better achievement uh, from Corn Crenshaw. But that's just my opinion. I guess we'll have to wait, wait and see. <laughs> we're st- hopefully we're still around and can have this debate <laughs> when it, we're 80 years old. It is, a, it is a good question as to what will those lists look like if they still exist 50 or 100 years from now. And are there golf courses today that are considered polarizing that people either love or hate, but therefore they aren't universally praised uh, that 50 or 100 years from now uh, people will will look on with, with a great deal of reverence and, and think, uh, how did the people 50 or 100 years ago debate that so much? <laughs> you know, we, right. we love it and we yeah. think it's great. Well, it goes back to the, the you know, the, it's well known by now, but, you know, 30, was it 30, 40 years ago, National Golf Links was, or Crystal Downs were not even on any list. They just weren't, they weren't recognized, they weren't known. So, it, you know, it's it'll be hard to, it's hard to hide a, a golf course now. It seems like if something's out there, the word, word will spread. I, I just hope that in, in that time period, 40 years or 100 years, golf still exists. I'm not, it's another... <laughs> Another conversation. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> sad one. Let's hope we still exist. As as well, let's hope the uh, AI hasn't taken us over. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. In that in that respect, the minimalist movement has a lot of work to do. Fight the good fight. Don't let the computers take over. Right. We need guys and guys and tractors. Um, last question. I, I'm assuming that as a, as a golf course architect and designer. I'm assuming, but I know it's true that like you you have a lot of ideas. You have a lot of things you want to accomplish in your career. I think every great novelist has a perfect novel in their head. They may not be ready to write it until a certain point in their career. When you close your eyes and think, what is of like the perfect Jay Blasey golf course? What do you see? <laughs> uh, that's interesting. You know what? What was uh, what's been interesting for me is you know when I was in high school, I was interviewed and they said, "What's your?" 
what's your dream in, in life? And I said, to design a U.S. Open golf course. And so then I, get, I go to work for RTJ, and, and the first opportunity I have to take a project start to finish and pour your heart and soul into it is a, is a, a project where um, not only is it a sandy site adjacent to water, with Lynx Golf, it's it's community golf. It's a municipal. It's Pierce County. It's a municipal golf project, uh, and there's the opportunity to try and host, you know, the games uh, or our nation's uh, championship, something that hadn't been done for forty plus years. Have a new course hosted. So, what was interesting for me was the first chance I had to 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 you know, kind of be the creative force behind a project was what I had always dreamed of. <laughs> and so you peak too soon, man. Well, well yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting now at this phase in life, um, how that evolves, right? So now, um, you know, one of the things that I haven't had the opportunity to do, uh, and I got an interesting note from from Tom the first time he saw Chambers. He he made some note about, you know, he he really liked what he saw and congrats or you know something like that. He, but he said I want I want to see what you can do on a a site with the uh, with great natural features and see if you can. I'll know if you're good if you can do that or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and so you know that that is the one thing that. Uh, well, the Patriot was an interesting site and a good site. It certainly wasn't sand, uh, and it's a tough climate to grow grass in. Uh, well, Santa Ana was a wonderful opportunity. You know, uh, it wasn't along the water and it wasn't sand based. So, um, you know, like everybody else, I'd love the opportunity to work on a great natural site to see if you could find the golf course that's that's already there and 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 bring it out that's a challenge that i haven't uh necessarily had yet that i'd like to take on i'd love to work in different places uh whether that's australia new zealand that'd be something cool home state of wisconsin go back and work there my wife is from germany so i'd love to do something either there and in continental europe um and like we talked about, depending on the site, there's all sorts of creative ideas for how you could do something new or different or interesting that uh, that will excite people. But it, it's an interesting evolution as to, to to what are your goals and what are your dreams and what do things look like. It is. It is indeed. Well, you're off to a good start. And you know, I think, at some, like I said earlier, I mean, at some point, opportunities will, will arise. There are some now in the redevelopment phase the redevelopment sector but you know at some point as long as there are some uh, money and investors out there as long as they still exist some opportunities will come along for for you and and some of your contemporaries as well and, and some great sites around the world so hope you get one i <laughs> can't wait looking forward all right well i think we covered a lot i think we, we kind of went around the country around the around the business um i thought that was a pretty good talk do you feel okay about it I feel great. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to join you. Uh, think very highly of uh, of the talks that you've had. I've, I've enjoyed listening to some of the uh, other uh, podcast uh, guests that you've had on, and uh, like that you you take a deep dive 
and certainly, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you how much I like your name, Feed the Ball. You know, that's that's one of the elements of golf that I probably like the most. And if there is something that's consistent amongst the projects that I've worked on is people uh, look hard and find find places to feed the ball. So, well, so on that topic, I'd love to get out to Santa Ana sometime. Just the the contouring around the greens, um, especially in that that great classic picture of the punch bowl that you posted on Twitter. I mean, I mean that's worth a that's got to be worth a, a flight out there just just for that hole alone. But it looks great, and love to see the way the ball moves around that golf course. Well, I'm happy to host you anytime. You let me know. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Likewise, likewise. I've I've heard you before talk, and and uh, your passion is evidence. And I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. So I'm I'm glad we finally got around to doing this, Jay. Thanks so much, Derek. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, thanks. Get back to the baby. All right, take care. I think the biggest takeaway from that conversation that I'll remember is our discussion about public golf. Um, it, I think it behooves those of us who care about public golf to keep talking about it and talk about ways it can be revitalized and kind of just keep batting the ball in the air. I really liked Jay's idea about getting the PGA Tour and the PGA of America and the USGA more seriously involved in promoting public golf. There's so much more that they could do. His idea about taking a PGA Tour event to a random municipal golf course every year is fantastic. What, could it happen? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. But if it could, it would really draw attention to public golf and municipal golf, which is the way that almost everybody who enters the game, not everybody, but I would say probably 80% of the people who come to golf or have come to golf in their life have come through public golf courses and, and probably um, average to below average facilities. But that's the way people play golf. That's a huge segment of the market. That's what golf is to many people. And that's what golf will continue to be for many people. And to bring a PGA Tour event to a course like that in a city would really help the tour players and the tours understand how the majority of America plays golf. I think they'd have a healthier appreciation of maybe of who their audience is. And interestingly, I think the tour and the PGA and the USGA might learn a thing or two about course setups because the key is you don't do anything to the setup of the golf course. You just play it as it is that week. There's no uh, there's no Mike Davis coming in. You just let them play scruffy rough, bare greens, slow greens, uh, you know, pour sand in the in the bunkers and let them play and see what happens. I think you'd find it would be a pretty compelling tournament. And the takeaway may be like we're really overproducing these golf courses that we present each week for tour play. They're monotonous, they're sanitized, and they're, they there's a way that there could be a much more interesting product if we don't manipulate the golf courses so much. So that's an, that's always a good conversation to have. Uh, I, once again, I got on my high horse about golf course architecture and design uh, after World War II. And my point, as I hope you all know, is, is not to say that these golf courses were superior to the golf courses being built now or to being built before, only that they turned out that way for a reason. But the courses that were built after the war and into the 50s and into the early 60s uh, I, I don't know that we have a true understanding of what was actually built. They've changed and grown and matured so much, and there have been alterations uh, performed on those golf courses just like there were in the golf courses of the 1920s. So I'm not sure we have a, a really pure, accurate understanding of what was built. And my main point is, you know, I don't feel that the majority of golf course enthusiasts treat the, this that era the same way that they would, uh, say, the 19-teens or 1920s. The level of research is not serious. And I just think it deserves uh, the same level of treatment and respect, if for no other reason, it just as an appreciation for what was happening during that time, rather than a denunciation of that whole period. We can appreciate it without necessarily loving it. 
So we'll wrap this up here. I want to thank Jay Blasey for coming on. It was a long time in the making, but we did finally hook up. That was good. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, once again, a reminder to do that. Go to iTunes, just click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You'll get alerted when I release them. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Give me a follow on those two venues. If you're not on social media right now, sign up. It's a great it's a great way to have discussions. You learn a lot. Uh, great photographs. Uh, I highly recommend getting on it. Just kind of keep your nose out of the, the dirty stuff. By dirty, I just mean the argumentative side of it. Stay tuned. I have more guests on the docket coming soon. And I'd like to thank the Sundogs and the Haraway Brothers for their music. Thanks again to you for listening. And until the next time, adios. Adios.